0: This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we hear In the Clouds Impressions of a Chair as Told to Sarah Bernhardt, a novella written by Sarah Bernhardt and published in Paris. In 1878. Translated by Mariana Fitzpatrick for publication in 1977 by Peebles Press. To Mr. Henry Giffard, two grateful artists, Sarah Bernhardt, Georges Clarin. The straw in my seat originated in a humble field near Toulouse, and my rungs were hewn from a modest elm in the Saint-Germain forest. A born wool-gatherer, I have always dreamed of high places. What visions of finery and travel I'd conjure up! How I envied gilt-chairs, with feet resting on Persian carpets! My greatest ambition was to be used for official purposes— The sight of moving vans passing by in the street, laden with chairs and furnishings destined for faraway places, made my heart pound. Lucky chairs! And I would weep quietly on my perch at the top of the store, head hanging, body hooked to an iron rod, my tears plopping onto the gas fire below in a succession of sputters. What disgusting wood! "'the grumpy shopkeeper would mutter each time she passed. "'It all began on a Tuesday, "'the day that the portly gentleman walked into the store. "'I'm looking for chairs,' he announced. "'Cheap ones!' "'We apparently filled the bill, "'because the shopkeeper, "'lining up 24 of my brethren, exclaimed, "'I have just what you want. "'Look at these.' "'Fine!' the gentleman replied, but I need even more. The scowling proprietress set out an additional twenty chairs. This is all that I have. No, wait, here's one more. But I feel I should warn you, because I'd never take advantage of a customer. This one's no good. The wood is still bleeding. I'll take it anyway, the man replied. And off we went in his handsome car. We travelled down street after street then turned onto a wide boulevard. Finally we entered a huge courtyard and stopped before a gate. We were lowered to earth, and two days later arranged in groups of three around marble-topped tables bearing pictures of women and druggists' advertisements. By keeping my eyes and ears open, I learned that we were in a section of the Tuileries Gardens, "'which had been converted into the home of a captive balloon. "'Look at that!' I heard voices murmur. "'Can you believe it?' "'Before me stood what was surely the biggest balloon ever. "'It even had an engine, which never stopped running. "'I clearly wasn't the only one impressed, "'because I heard men in the know say, "'What beautiful work! Jafar really is extraordinary!' He can really do a job right. How proud I felt. The fact that I didn't know Monsieur Giffard seemed unimportant. I still was elated. Naturally, certain bystanders criticized the cable or the gondola or the engine, but I quickly realized that these scoffers were milksops who would rather be little than act. I chuckled deep in my straw at their cowardice. One onlooker refused to take a balloon ride for fear of widowing his wife, another because of his children, a third complained of vertigo, not to mention a thousand other feeble excuses. I had been there for eight days now, and the crowd grew denser with each ascension. How I longed to go up myself! But no, the voyagers travelled bolt upright in the gondola, So what use would they have for a chair? I was deep in thought when voices nearby caught my ear. Who's that you nodded to? Donna Sol. Point her out, would you? I've never met her. Here she comes now. I looked up and saw a group of people led by a slender, pale-faced young woman heading toward me. Donna Sol was fingering a slim cane, and talking a mile a minute. After she had finished her balloon ride, she came and sat down beside me. She was pink with pleasure from her ascension, and returned the next day, and the next, and every day thereafter. I thought she was charming, if only I could serve as her seat. Dona Sol was soon making two or three balloon trips daily. It seemed to me that this was overdoing it. Others agreed and told her so. My chest bothers me, she replied, and I can breathe so easily up there. Her lovely voice conquered my heart, but certain dull-witted, petty bystanders were harder to convince. I heard my young friend criticized defended slandered how i fumed at my inability to speak in her behalf one day i listened to a stout gentleman accompanied by an even stouter woman heap insult after insult upon my friend she was so dreadfully affected she would do anything to get attention she had no acting talent whatsoever she kept someone hidden backstage to speak her roles "'She merely supplied the gestures. "'A starving sculptor tucked away in a closet "'was responsible for the figures she claimed to model. "'And as for her painting, "'everyone knew that she had never so much as held a brush in her hand. "'That was clear shortly. "'And they both burst out laughing at their stupid pun. "'Trembling with outrage, "'I jostled the stout gentleman who was seated upon me, he jumped to his feet, and taking me by the back, threw me angrily to the ground. What a rickety chair. It's too flimsy even to hold Donna soul. Now there's an idea, exclaimed Louis Godard, who was passing by. I can use something lightweight. We'll take it along tomorrow. And picking me up, he examined my limbs to be sure that the brute hadn't cracked me. Then he carried me into a huge shed. Nobody touch this, he ordered, shoving me into a corner. It's going with us tomorrow for Donasol. Could I be dreaming? What did he mean by tomorrow? Who was this Donasol? What would the morning bring? All night long, I watched while groups of women crouched on the shed floor worked busily on a heap of orange material whose shape I couldn't distinguish. They were discussing the coming day, but I could only hear bits of their conversation, enough to tickle my curiosity without satisfying it. At last dawn broke. It was Tuesday again. I dozed off briefly. The sound of workmen bundling up the orange cloth woke me with a start. One of the workers peeled off his jacket and slung it over my back. I could no longer see. The noise of comings and goings continued inside the shed, but I couldn't tell what the sounds meant. How I suffered. At last the offending workman returned, ringing with perspiration, and carried his jacket away. I parted my straws and looked out. What a surprise! There before me rose a plump, soft, mushroom shaped object which seemed to spring from the earth. As I watched, it expanded and began straining toward the sky. Finally, it left the ground, anchored by ropes. It was a balloon, a small orange balloon. As it ascended, It nodded politely to the larger balloon nearby, which was lurching against its moorings like an elephant. A crowd quickly assembled. The balloon was completely inflated now. I glimpsed Donna Saul among the onlookers. Someone lifted me into a grubby little laundry basket. The small balloon seemed immense now that it towered above me. The crowd suddenly parted. Was another chair being carried aboard to keep me company? No, it was Donnesol on the arm of Monsieur Gaston Tissandier. Behind her strode the young painter, Georges Claren. Monsieur d'Artois and the two famous Godards peered into the basket to see if I was securely anchored. I was about to thank them for their thoughtfulness when I was blinded by a flurry of lace. Donna Saul had sat down on me. Georges Clarin leaped into the gondola, followed by Louis Godard, the nephew of the illustrious pair. The time was 5.30. The crowd thronged about us. Hats were tipped, hands shaken, farewells exchanged. Then the balloon soared upwards to the sound of appreciative clapping. Then nothing, nothing at all. Land below, sky above. We were up in the clouds. A hazy Paris had been replaced by blue sky and a radiant sun. The little basket swung along through patches of milky, sun-warmed mist. Opaque mountains with shimmering crests rose about us, a thin grey line silhouetted against a far-distant horizon. It was glorious, overwhelming, utter silence, not a whisper, no, not silence, rather its shadow, muted, blurred. I heard Donna Saul whisper, if only this could last forever. Abruptly the scene shifted. The clouds parted and the balloon began descending toward the Pont de la Concorde, a few hundred feet from our point of departure. The crowd, which had been massed in the Tuileries Gardens, rushed toward the quayside. We were aiming straight for the Seine. Clarent turned to our pilot with a questioning look. "'Don't worry. It's just a little joke of mine,' Godard explained. "'Watch.' "'He tossed a ballast bag overboard, and we headed skywards again. "'There wasn't a breath of air on high, "'so our pilot manoeuvred us over the captive balloon to wait for the wind. "'By six o'clock, air currents had formed, "'and we sailed off in an easterly direction. "'Let's tidy up the gondola,' Goddard suggested. "'Then we'll relax.' The ballast bags were removed from under our feet, draped over the basket's side, and securely tied in place. Then Donna Sol's cloak and her companion's raincoat were carefully folded over the rigging. The young woman had also brought along a pair of patent leather boots, which were hooked to the basket's rim and left to bob in the air. This seemed to upset them deeply. I heard the right boot mutter to the left, between you and me, she could have left us at home. If she wants to break our necks on horseback, that's one thing. But ballooning? I was straining to hear the rest when my attention was captured by donisol's golden voice. This chair bothers me terribly. Her very words. Can't we toss it overboard? That's out of the question. You might kill an innocent Parisian. George Claren shouted, and he snatched me away from the madwoman who was waving me over the side. Horrors! I had heard rumors that she cooked cats in order to eat their roasted hides, that she adored lizard tails and peacock brains fried in monkey blubber. I knew that she played croquet with skulls which she dressed up in wigs reminiscent of Louis Fourteenth. I believed her capable of anything. Who couldn't massacre an innocent chair, after all? Still she had caught me off guard. While my fate was being hotly disputed my rungs trembled with fear. Finally Godard gathered me up in his arms. Madame's right, you know. This chair is in the way. I'll take care of it. With that I fainted. When I recovered consciousness, I found myself swinging next to the little boots. There I was, dangling in space, fastened to the gondola by a string looped through my top rung. A wave of dizziness swept over me, then, as I grew accustomed to my new location, I began taking my bearings. To my left, A small pot-bellied basket hung by one handle. The gondola looked like a travelling curiosity shop. We were back in the clouds, at an altitude of close to 5,000 feet. Once again the view was spectacular. Silvery clouds, fleecy as swans down, served as our carpet. Huge, orange hangings fringed with purple streamed from the sun to lose themselves in a froth of white lace. The balloons seemed to hang motionless. The temperature was delightfully cool. How pure the air was! Donisot recited a touching lament. That sounds like Minuccio's lament by Alfred de Musset," Clarin remarked. Actually, Musset's version is based on Boccaccio's text, which the poet translated word for word from the Old French. I prefer Boccaccio's interpretation. The young woman recited the poem again, while I listened intently, committing it to memory. It went as follows. Go forth, sweet love, bear witness to my pain. Tell my good lord I deem I shall expire. SHOULD HE COME NOT, NOR HELP TO CURB MY FIRE, FEARING THAT THIS MIGHT KINDLE HIM AGAIN. HAVE MERCY, LOVE, WITH CLASPED HANDS I IMPLORE, HIGH TO MY LORD, ATTEND HIM AT HIS TOWER. PROCLAIM MY LOVE WHICH BURNETH EVERMORE, UNTIL I FEAR TO PERISH FROM ITS POWER, CONSUMED BY PASSION, HEEDLESS OF THE HOUR. The thought of parting fills me with such grief That should his pity not provide relief I fear that I shall see my senses wane And thus will end a life most cruelly brief Alas, love, sing to him my sad refrain Since first my soul fell captive to his sway Beset my fear, alas, my flame burns dim My heart has known such pain and disarray That I cannot protest my worth to him. Fain would I die, and end a state so grim. But live I shall, and vanquish my despair. Were he but of my woeful plight aware, Surely my lord would sorrow. Yet complain I shall not. Summon him I do not dare. Love, fly to him, and sing my sad refrain. And yet, dear love, what hope is left in me, that my sweet Lord will hear what you confess? How can he comprehend or weigh my plea, fathom my suffering, face his heartlessness? Still, I implore you, ease my sore distress. Bid him think back upon a bygone day. With blunted lance, he plunged into the fray when duty called him to the jousting plain. As our eyes met, he turned his head away. Oh, would that he might heed my sad refrain. When the recitation was over, Donna Sol and Claren launched into a literary discussion while young Godard busied himself with the balloon. A sudden rush of sound, like crumpling paper, assailed our ears. A black whirlwind swept by, then turned to wheel over the balloon. I recognized a flock of swallows, already heading south. Perhaps they were unusually delicate. In their midst flew a grim-looking elderly female, cloaked in black, quaffed with a patch of white lace, and plump as a customs official. The entire flock stopped short, uttering piercing cries at the sight of our balloon. After a brief consultation with their hoary leader, the wild birds circled us twice, cheeping shrilly, then winged off into the distance. The surrounding air had grown tepid, and stale gusts drifted up from the city. We could see Paris again. My companion said we were approaching the Bastille. Our balloon, weighed down by the dampness, was heading earthwards. It was time to unload more ballast. Donna Sol clamoured to open one of the sacks and showered its contents over the insolent Statue of Liberty gracing the handsome square. An English family, airing themselves on the balcony of the July Common, were blinded by the sand. The father looked irately at the elegant statue, suspecting foul play. But the impassive figure, leg-raised, arm-bent, continued administering grace with typically French aplomb. Now that the sack was empty, we quickly climbed again. We soon struck an air-current, and the balloon began picking up speed. The city spread below us, a blur of grey. The streets looked like giant snakes, the boulevards like huge boas in repose. In the distance, the La Villette gasworks lay like a raised cemetery. The balloon hovered for a moment over a curious structure that resembled a giant wheel. Clarin, peering through his spyglass, recognized La Roquette. It was exercise time, The poor devils in the recreation yard gazed up at our balloon, scion of the heavens, the epitome of freedom. Arms dangling, they stood there agape, eyes glued to the sky. Dona picked up a spyglass and described the emotions that appeared to be sweeping through the crowd. One of the convicts, pacing the prison yard, had turned his face to the wall and burst into tears she reported, who knows, perhaps he was waiting to die, while we above reveled in life, sunshine, freedom. Soon we were climbing again. All of us felt a certain sadness. Propelled by the wind, we moved across Père Lachaise Cemetery. Georges Clarin and Donna Sol waved to the tombs of their friends as we passed. The young woman plucked at the blossoms, pinned to her jacket, sending a swirl of white petals onto the graves below. A thick white veil settled regally over the cemetery. Our balloon slipped into one of its folds and began circling slowly. Twenty minutes later, emerging from this ghostly limbo, we saw Vincent in the distance. It was half past six and hunger stalked the gondola. Being made of wood, my stomach was undemanding, but this was not true for the others. The little basket was brought into the gondola, then Donna Sol settled herself on the floor and began making goose-liver sandwiches. Feet braced, Louis Godard opened the champagne with a pop and the cork sailed off through the air. The report echoed from cloud to cloud. A torrent of foam gushing from the bottle was quaffed by a passing patch of mist, which then veered tipsily toward heaven. Soon all the clouds were swooping, embracing, colliding and swirling apart to envelope us in their celestial intoxication. Georges Clarin, pencil in hand, captured this unusual repast "'enjoyed 8,000 feet above the earth in his sketchbook. book had carefully set the table. "'A tiny napkin and a goose-liver sandwich lay at each place. "'The men had crystal glasses. "'The young woman drank from a small silver mug. "'The sky was magnificent. "'The weather had donned its most dazzling finery. "'The meal was extremely gay.' It consisted of two main courses, goose-liver sandwiches, followed by sandwiches made of goose-liver. A succulent dessert of oranges topped off the feast. A toast was proposed to Monsieur Giffard, the future of ballooning, fame, the arts, and all things past, present, and future. Then the wine-bottle was sent waltzing into the Vincent Lake. The swans clapped their wings with fright. The lake gathered its brow in a frown. Then as the bottle struck bottom, all grew calm again. A haunting sadness suddenly filled the air. "'Poor bottle,' murmured Donasol. "'It reminds me of an aging actress. In her dazzling prime, she gives us all she has. Instead of gratitude, when we have drained her dry, we ungratefully condemn her to oblivion, without a second thought. "'Come, come, let's enjoy life. We'll be dead soon enough,' Georges Claren cried. "'What a gloomy bunch,' added Godard. "'There's no room for sad thoughts aboard. Look how they're weighing down the balloon. Get rid of some ballast, fast!' THE DEVIL WITH PHILOSOPHY!" The voyagers burst out laughing, driving away the shadows. Then they hurriedly opened a ballast bag. As luck would have it, the sack's entire contents cascaded onto an out-of-doors wedding reception. We were losing altitude so quickly that we were now a bare fifteen hundred feet above the ground. Our shower of pebbles was greeted with horrified shouts. THE BRIDE IMMEDIATELY TURNED TO A LITTLE BOY OF SEVEN OR EIGHT WHO WAS PEACEFULLY PLAYING PONY WITH AN UMBRELLA AND CUFFED HIM RESOUNDINGLY. DONNA Sol, PEERING DOWN AT THE SCENE THROUGH HER SPYGLASS, WAS ENRAGED AT THIS INJUSTICE AND HURLED THE EMPTY GOOSE LIVER TIN INTO THE CROWD. NOW ALL EYES TURNED UPWARDS. BY ADJUSTING THE GAS VALVE, Monsieur GODARD ALLOWED THE BALLOON TO HOVER. This was too good to miss. Cupping their hands, the wedding party covered us with insults which we unfortunately couldn't hear. The child who had been so unfairly punished tried to pelt us with stones, but a bag of candy which Donna Saul tossed his way nipped his revenge in the bud, and he settled down happily to count his riches. The bridegroom, who was still fuming, suddenly disappeared behind a bush. Thinking himself invisible since he couldn't see us, he proceeded to strip off his dress suit, his vest, and finally his suspenders. Donasol quickly suggested that we take to the skies for modesty's sake. But her discretion proved premature. Picking up a stone, the bridegroom laid it to a suspender and prepared to storm the balloon by slingshot. He braced himself, spreading his legs wide then one two three fell flat on his face in a puddle the wedding party collapsed with laughter we voyageurs echoed their hilarity while the little boy rolled on the ground with glee the bride's mother shook with mirth her belly breasts and legs jiggling alarmingly the bride clutched her sides while our gondola plunging from left to right in the general merriment made the boots kick up their heels, cracking their leather. I bounced against the pot-bellied basket which bounced gaily back. Finally the grey heavens split with laughter and the comedy ended with every man for himself. Our balloon shielded us from the rollicking downpour and we passed through the shower unscathed. Rising upwards we emerged from the clouds into the sunlight leaving the earth veiled in rain. Once again the view was spectacular. The sun, incensed to be sent to bed soon, was flushed with anger. Little grey clouds flitted teasingly over its face, like gnats tormenting a lion. Thick black lines rimmed the horizon. The clouds about us thickened. It looks like a foggy day at sea, Clarin remarked. A storm was muttering in the distance. We were back at eight thousand feet. The air had turned warmer. Joinville le plan lay behind us. The Marne stretched below like a lustrous ribbon. Small boats skimmed its surface like fish. The view was ravishing with the approach of twilight. The air became charged with poetry we bobbed briskly along over fields and forests witnessing tears and laughter away we sailed past a bright little garden where singing and laughter rose from the table next came a small graveyard where a woman wept over a tomb life in all its variety was being lived in those dwellings below us the balloon sped by a chateau set in a spacious park a party was under way. People rushed to and fro, and the air was filled with music. "'How small men look from here,' I mused. "'And think of God, who's higher still. How can he see anything at all?' This philosophizing earned me a kick from one of the boots. I shrank back into my straw. The sun had set. It was 7.15.' Night donned its dusky mantle. The balloon had climbed to over 8,000 feet, the highest we yet had gone. We could no longer see the ground. A delightful feeling of melancholy suffused us. Donna Sol and Georges Clarin began singing a Breton ballad. I was just drifting off into a delicious sleep when Louis Godard's voice made me jump. Listen, my friends, it's time to consider landing. "'Throw out the guide-rope!' "'So soon?' cried Donisol. "'What a pity!' "'Yes, but it's getting late, "'and we want to descend as artistically as possible. "'Man the guide-rope!' he commanded, throwing out a line. "'All hands to the guide-rope!' echoed the others. "'I craned forward to see what they meant by a guide-rope, and observed a long cord studded at regular intervals with little iron hooks dangling over the edge. The young painter and the actress set busily to work at the pilot's side. The rope was almost four hundred feet long. Leaning out of the gondola, Godard watched the cord descend, while Clarin and Donasol slowly played out the line, laughing when one or the other got nicked by a hook. When the rope was completely unwound, Godard picked up a spyglass. "'Confound it! Look at those trees!' he muttered. Indeed, the balloon was now hovering over a little woods. Beyond lay a meadow, then trees again as far as the eye could see. After taking his bearings, our pilot informed us that we would have to land in the clearing, otherwise we risked descending in total darkness in the middle of the Ferriere Forest.' There was no time to lose. Donna Sol was assigned the task of throwing open the gas valve. The gas rushed out with a mocking whistle. Then the valve was shut off again. We were now descending swiftly. When we reached 1,600 feet, Louis Godard dug into one of his pockets. A veritable warehouse, in extracting a small horn, gave a vigorous blast. "'Good heavens!' Gasped Donasol, "I've missed my entrance." In her confusion, she was about to leap overboard when Clarin grasped her arm. "Calm yourself, my dear," he said with a smile. "That's not her nanny calling; it's the station master." All three burst out laughing, while Donasol regained her composure. We drifted over a little hamlet fringing the forest. The rails of the eastern line lay below. How strange the tracks looked from here, a thick black line snaking hither and yon, highlighted by steel cables. Suddenly the silence was broken by an ungodly roar as a formidable monster clattered down the tracks, eyes blazing, flames spewing from its iron maw, its warm breath rising in sturdy puffs toward heaven. The station master, glimpsing the balloon and realizing that it intended to land despite the lateness of the hour, had summoned an emergency crew to stand by in case we needed help. Where are we? Louis Goddard shouted into the horn. Ow oh, yeah. the station master replied. Try as we might we couldn't understand. Where are we? Cried Clarin in turn at the top of his lungs. Oh! Yeah, shrieked the station master between cupped hands. Where are we? Donasol called in her ringing tones. Oh! Yeah, the onlookers chorused. Hopeless. It was time to release more ballast. We were descending too quickly and the wind was carrying us back towards the woods. Night was falling. We turned upwards once more. The sky was midnight blue and streaked with grey clouds. After ten minutes of flight, we reopened the valve and moved earthward. The balloon was now well to the right of the railway station and its obliging station master. "'It's time to drop anchor,' young Goddard announced. A second rope measuring over two hundred and fifty feet was lowered over the side, an enormous anchor dangling at its end. Shrill, jumbled noises rose from the ground, but I was unable to distinguish the shapes milling beneath us. "'Good heavens! Look at all those children!' gasped Donna Indeed, we were being pursued by a horde of youngsters who had been leaping hedges and dashing through fields behind us ever since we have hovered above the train station. We were now a bare nine hundred feet from the ground. It was time to put the horn to work again. "'Where are we?' Enverscher! young voices chorused gaily. It took several tries before we could understand." "'Where in the world is Verchere?' Clarin asked. "'I haven't the slightest idea. Nor do I. Well, we'll soon find out.' Our pilot released more ballast and opened the valve again. I had to admit he was doing a splendid job, and although the opinion of a wooden chair isn't worth very much, I would have liked to offer my compliments.' Country folk were hurrying toward us from all directions. Our surroundings, shrouded in darkness, loomed mysteriously in the background. You there, take hold of that dragging rope, but be sure not to pull too hard. While the rustics pursued our anchor, I glanced up at the balloon. Its appearance shocked and dismayed me. Once so plump and round, it now hung thin and disheveled. The hem of its skirt was almost brushing our heads. How ugly it looked. The country folk had grasped the anchor rope and were pulling us toward them when Godard shouted to release the line at once. We don't want to end up in a pond. Indeed, directly below us lay a pool of stagnant water, but we soon had left it behind. All right. My friends, start pulling again, but gently." Five sinewy farmers took hold of the long cord. We were now less than four hundred feet over the ground, and I assure you that for a chair who had never travelled, it was a curious sight indeed. In the surrounding darkness everything took on new meaning. The farmers looked like giants, the children appeared no bigger than dwarfs. By now several women were mingling in the crowd. In the midst of a sea of heads, some bare, some covered with kerchiefs or caps, three bowler hats gleamed majestically on their proud owners' heads. Young Godard continued barking out orders, his darting eyes alert as he cheered the rustics on. Bravo, my friends, that's perfect. Gently now, let's see some of that famous French chivalry. There's a lady aboard. A lady! the farmers cried as one. A lady! 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 their voices echoed. A lady! croaked the bullfrogs in the pond, and the crowd rushed towards the balloon. One of the bumpkins, unable to contain his curiosity, struck a match. Our young pilot roared with anger. "'Well done, my good man. If you have another, be sure to strike it as well. "'Then you can watch us all be blown sky-high.' "'His words caused a general uproar, "'and the imprudent bystander was shoved to the rear of the crowd "'amidst a rain of insults. "'In the resulting commotion, the frightened farmers released the anchor, "'and we began rising again. "'But inquisitiveness soon overcame their fear, and they returned to cluster around us. "'Hold tight to the rigging, and stand on your tiptoes, mademoiselle,' Godard instructed the young actress. "'Above all, don't be afraid. I'll get you down without a bump.' He was true to his word. Thanks to his deft manoeuvring, the gondola glided to earth like a bird. I had worried that my four wooden legs would shatter with the impact of landing." But my fears proved ungrounded. I remained snugly attached to the gondola and never felt even a tremor. "'There she is, the young lady! "'The young lady!' shouted the children. "'What does she look like?' asked the women. "'I caught one of the children's eyes. "'Look at that chair hanging out of the basket! "'What a funny idea, a chair in the sky!' ''It helps balance the balloon,'' proclaimed one of the bowler hats. Georges Clarent leaped to the ground and prepared to hand down Don ''No, no, I refuse to get out. I was promised a sleigh-ride through the grass while the balloon was deflating. ''I'm afraid you'll have to wait until next time for that, madame. ''The conditions aren't right.'' for today you'll have to make do with a commonplace landing." Reluctantly Dona agreed to leave the balloon. The painter picked her up gently and placed her on the ground. The crowd pressed nearer. "'What a fine lady!' exclaimed one little girl, fingering Dona dress. "'Mother of God, you'll never catch me going up in a contraption like that. "'cried a gnarled, wrinkled countrywoman, crossing herself emphatically. "'It would be a pity, Granny. "'The region would lose its most toothsome inhabitant, "'and the priest would be stripped of his youngest black sheep.' "'The crowd burst out laughing. "'A sturdy countryman had replaced Donna Sol in the gondola. "'Not that her presence was needed.' Slim as she was, she served more as ballast than weight. Two other rustics took Claren and Goddard's place. The balloon, tugging at anchor, suddenly lifted its passengers several feet off the ground, much to the bystander's glee. The boots, the basket, and I were still dangling from the gondola. At last the balloon landed for good. George Clarin untied me "'and placed me in a field. "'Donna Sol sank onto my seat "'and slipped into her boots. "'The earth was soaked "'and the freshly mowed hay "'prodded my legs. "'The three bowler hats approached, "'whispering together, "'I'm certain that's who it is,' "'said a clear young voice. "'Impossible,' retorted a pompous one. "'Perhaps?' "'Chimed Bowler number 3. "'I can tell from the way she talks.' "'The first bowler saluted the young woman with a bow. "'It's a great honour for our modest village to welcome Donna Sol. "'How is it possible that you recognise me, monsieur? "'It's so dark that we can barely see each other.' "'I know your voice, mademoiselle.' "'Really? "'I'm delighted and extremely flattered, monsieur.' "'Now the second hat drew near. "'I'm very cross with you, mademoiselle.' "'But why, monsieur?' "'Because you turned down my invitation.' "'I'm afraid I don't understand.' "'Nor I,' added voice number one. "'Nor I?' "'Nor I. "'It's perfectly simple, really. "'Your balloon drifted over my property about an hour ago. "'I'm a landowner, mademoiselle, "'the most powerful man in these parts.' my dinner guests, and I rushed outside to watch you pass, and I recognized Mademoiselle at once. The young woman tried to stifle her laughter. So that's it, cried Clarenne maliciously. You were the one who was signaling. Yes, I remember well. Perfectly, in fact. See? said the beaming landowner to his fellow bowlers, who were staring at him open-mouthed. Thanks to the covering darkness, the game could be continued. I recognized Mademoiselle Donasol instantly, and began waving on the spot, as Monsieur Godard has just pointed out. I recognized him, too, of course. "'You're too kind,' Monsieur Clarenne murmured. "'Me as well?' "'Yes, Monsieur Godard, at first glance. I hoped that by signalling I might induce you back to earth.' And honor you at my table, but suddenly a most curious hailstorm fell from the gondola, and your balloon sailed away. That's why I'm vexed at you, Mademoiselle. All of this was declaimed in stentorian tones. I heard Sol murmur that the bowler hat was the spitting image of the famed actor Baron. Just then, Young Godard joined our group, but before he could give us away, Sol said loudly. I'd like you to meet Monsieur Claren, our travelling companion. Yes, of course. The manager of the Comedie Francaise wouldn't let one of his stars gad about in the sky unattended. Delighted to meet you, Monsieur Paren. Young Godard, caught off guard, was about to reply, but fearing to spoil the fun, leaped back into the gondola like a mountain goat, shouting, "Let's get to work! We've got to deflate the balloon." "'Monsieur Perrin seems charming,' murmured the false baron. "'And he looks so young. He must have a great many friends.' "'He does, monsieur.' A sudden shout from the crowd interrupted this curious conversation. "'The sky had flung open its sluice gates, drenching us all within seconds. "'I began sinking into the mud.' Donessal jumped to her feet and wrapping herself in the cloak refused to budge. But you'll be soaked, mademoiselle, gasped the frantic young man. Don't worry, monsieur. I'm so thin that I can squeeze between the drops. The lightly clad farm girls and countrywomen had flung their skirts over their heads. One young sylph, who had left home without her drawers, found herself bare from the waist down. But in spite of her mother's admonitions, she refused to lower her dress, insisting that she was clothed in darkness. The children stood clustered around the young actress, who had gathered three of them under her ample cloak. Georges Clarin and Godard were hard at work on the balloon, helped by a swarm of rustics. What a strange picture we made! The broad field in which we had landed stretched off towards the horizon. The balloon spilled over the ground, breathing loudly. As strong hands kneaded its sides, bursts of gas gushed from its mouth. I was reminded of the death-rattle of a giant turtle. In the darkness, the balloon's mesh netting looked like tortoise shell, completing the illusion. Godard's assistants were as drenched with perspiration as they were soaked by the rain. Donna Saul seemed extremely touched when a small boy rushed up with an umbrella. She used it to shelter several urchins, among them the flushed little messenger. "'How gallant these country folk are!' she exclaimed with a smile. The third bowler approached, clearing his throat. Up until now he had limited his conversation to, perhaps. Pleased to be addressing us at last, he intoned in a soft sing-song. "'You're absolutely right, mademoiselle. People here are famous for their gentle, kindly ways. They cherish and care for each other. Take the little boy you've been hugging, for example. He's an orphan. But these worthy farmers have assumed the roles of his father and mother and the local shepherd has taken him in. And where do you fit in, monsieur? Me? I cheer them on, mademoiselle. I'm the oldest landowner around here. They're my children, and this district will be rich when I die. But, monsieur, I'm not an orphan. I still have papa. Quite right, my good lad, but not for long. Your dear father is soon to be guillotined. I shuddered with horror. Donna Saul fought for control. The youth burst into tears and the third hat, delighted by the effect of his words, continued dryly. Alas, yes, it's a very sad story. This child's dear father killed his good wife a month ago. As a matter of fact, mademoiselle, the crime was committed right where that chair is standing." I started so violently that the motherless child, who was clambering over my back, was thrown to the ground. "'My, my, isn't fate strange. The boy has landed on the very spot where his mother expired.' "'How did it happen?' asked Dona gathering the lad in her arms. "'It's all very simple, mademoiselle. The two young people fell out of love.' "'What's more, the husband had his eye on somebody else. "'That's all well and good when you're a bachelor like me. "'But marriage is sacred, and besides, "'country folk can't afford separations. "'To make a long story short, "'one morning when the husband was out reaping the very hay "'whose stubble you see before you, "'his wife arrived with his lunch. "'The brute lunged at her with his scythe, "'but the blade only nicked her leg. "'Neither one said a word.' Days later they returned to the field to bring in the hay. The woman stationed herself near the cart and watched her husband toss up the bales. After the fifth forkful, he suddenly shouted, "'Let's see you duck this one, my dear,' and he hurled the pitchfork at her. It lodged itself deep in the poor woman's neck. A shepherd who was hidden nearby in the woods saw the whole thing and spread the alarm." During the telling of this grisly tale, the countrywomen had been shrinking further and further back from the scene of the crime. The children listened white-faced to the bowler hat's sing-song recital. Even the balloon was near collapse. Under the pressure of work-hardened fingers, it had become a crumpled shell. The few breaths of gas which remained in its lungs were gradually seeping from its mutilated body. Finally, it breathed its last and lay still as a slumbering boa. The rain continued to fall. Donna Saul asked about trains for Paris. The first one you can possibly make leaves at ten tonight. It's a good hour's ride to the station, and since you have no carriage, you'll have to allow two hours of fast walking. But that's out of the question, cried Clarence. "'Mademoiselle can't possibly walk that far.' "'There must be another solution,' the actress said firmly. She looked about for bowler number one and seemed annoyed that he had vanished. "'The young farmer's gone off to bed,' said the pompous voice. "'We were more gallant in my day.' "'We're still just as gallant and a good deal more practical, dear sir,' cried the accused one. "'leaping down nimbly from a carriage which had drawn silently up behind us. "'I went to get two rigs hitched up at my stable, "'this one for Mademoiselle and her party, "'and another, which is on its way, for the remains of the balloon.' "'Donisol gratefully pressed the young man's hand. "'Upon my word, I believe you've saved our lives,' said Clarin. "'From what they say, the roads around here must be dreadful.' "'Quite right. No Parisienne could make it halfway to the station on foot.' "'During the above conversation, Godard and his crew had rolled up the balloon and stowed it in the gondola, along with the guide-rope, anchor and rigging. When the second carriage arrived, the rain-soaked bundle was laboriously hoisted aboard. Poor balloon! It had been so bright and perky.' Now it was a crumpled rag, stuffed into a basket. Its lovely orange color had been darkened by rain, which continued falling in torrents. Our little group fell silent. It seemed to be mourning the end of our gay outing. Suddenly Louis Godard said gravely, "Listen, everyone." The country folk drew nearer. Donna Sol and George Claren invite you to drink to the health of Monsieur Giffard. Men, women, and children swarmed toward our young captain. Over here, Monsieur, this way. Hands were extended eagerly. Which of you is the oldest? I am, Monsieur. No, me. In a moment the children would be swearing that they were eighty years old. "'Why don't you just give it all to me?' boomed a resounding baritone. "'I'll treat everyone tonight, and then tomorrow I'll provide lunch with whatever's left over.' The voice belonged to the local tavern-keeper. His proposal sounded reasonable enough, and the money was placed in his hand. The crowd bid us farewell and disappeared across the field. It looked like a flock of sparrows routed by pebbles.' Our party headed off toward the road leaving me stranded at the scene of the crime as donna Sol was about to step into the carriage she suddenly looked back my chair she cried where is it i won't leave without it some peasant will be overjoyed to find it here tomorrow sniffed godard why don't we just leave it behind no no i'm very attached to that chair have someone fetch it at once. My heart leaped with joy. Although I had no idea what accounted for Donna Sol's change of heart, I instantly buried my grudge and gazed at her adoringly. Within minutes, Clarine was placing me in the carriage, next to my actress friend. "'Poor chair!' she exclaimed, trying to pat me dry. "'You're drenched!' indeed i was bleeding like a pig that's how upset i was the carriage in which i found myself was comfortably appointed donna sol had settled herself in the back with clarin at her side i lay facing them on a banquette an exhausted louis godard slumped in a corner across from the pompous bowler the remaining hat had set off alone on foot our new young friend shared the driver's seat with the pot-bellied basket and the orphan whom we planned to drop off at the shepherd's hut. The grey mare set off at a brisk clip, quickly outstripping the cart containing the defunct balloon. Nobody felt much like talking. Rain was still falling. The roads were in dreadful shape. The night was black as pitch. Not a lighted window in sight, My companions looked cold and hungry. They seemed just about to doze off when the carriage halted abruptly and the young driver turned to Donna "'Do you see that hovel, mademoiselle? The one half hidden by birches? An old madwoman lives there. She's an interesting case. Twenty-two years ago she lost a seven-year-old son whose beautiful singing voice had earned him the name of Nightingale in these parts.' Ever since, the poor woman has spent her days, winter and summer, rain and shine, hot weather and cold, grubbing for worms, ants and caterpillars, which she stores in her hut. At night, she walks about, calling her son and scattering her strange harvest. "'Listen!' A mournful voice quavered through the night. "'Nightingale, nightingale, nightingale, come, darling!' Suddenly a shadowy form emerged from the bushes and skirted the hedge, its tall, slightly stooped silhouette outlined against the sky. Its half-bare shoulders were spattered with raindrops. Its arms moved rhythmically, sewing caterpillars and ants. Nightingale! Nightingale! it whimpered. Then all was still again. Poor old thing! murmured the actress. She dabbed at a tear with her gloved finger as the carriage lurched gaily onward. Before long we arrived at a village. The carriage drew up before a gate, and the pompous gentleman stepped down. This is where I live. Bon voyage, mademoiselle. Monsieur Perrin, Monsieur Gerard, it was a pleasure meeting you. As he solemnly stepped into his elegant park, we continued on our way, pausing only to return our young charge to his keeper. Then suddenly, "'Stop! Here's the station!' Tucking me under her arm, Dona Sol stepped out of the carriage along with the others. We headed for the waiting room. "'Why, if it isn't Monsieur Godard!' cried the station master. "'And Mademoiselle Donna Sol. "'But how can you tell?' asked clarin if there are two things that i love it's balloons and the theatre monsieur do step into my office you can warm up there mademoiselle must be frozen our charming host quickly made us at home where are we exactly at amaranville you must be the people who passed overhead around seven this evening i thought you were going to land Oh. "'so you're the one we asked for.' "'That's right, for the name of this part of the world.' "'I shouted as loudly as I could, but I realized that you couldn't hear me.' "'Ah, monsieur is an artist,' the good man continued as Clarine began to sketch. "'Yes, I'm a painter.' "'What pleasure for me to be able to welcome you. "'I love artists, monsieur. "'I simply love them.' "'Would you possibly have something to eat, and perhaps a glass of water?' asked Goddard. "'I'm parched and famished.' "'Of course. I'll be right back.' A few minutes later a child appeared, bringing bread, cheese, and cider. "'But I never touch cheese,' complained donisol "'Well, today will be an exception,' snapped Clarin. "'It smells... "'Dreadful!' "'Not at all. "'Don't stand on formalities, madame. "'Please help yourself.' "'The young woman looked daggers at Clarine, "'then attacked the platter. "'During the frugal repast, "'the young bowler supervised the unloading of the balloon. "'The gondola and its precious cargo "'were carefully handed down and put in the baggage-room. "'Poor scion of the heavens!' locked behind bars and unceremoniously labelled the train was well behind schedule it had something to do with plums the station-master explained exactly what and why remained a mystery finally a whistle blew Sol tucked me back under her arm and we all rushed on to the quay our host was hurriedly thanked for his hospitality monsieur Clarenne, and the bowler hat exchanged cards, then Donasol thanked the gallant young Monsieur B for all he had done for us, praising his gracious manner. We climbed aboard the train. Donasol sank back in her seat and rested her feet on me. I embraced them gratefully. Clarine stretched out on the facing banquette, and Louis Godard settled down with a sigh. Once the train was underway, everyone dozed off. I attempted to marshal my thoughts after my wild adventures. Only yesterday I had been a nondescript chair, spinning impossible dreams about rugs and reception rooms, cars and travel. Since then, I had spent the night in a cavernous shed, been acclaimed by crowds as I passed, gone ballooning, spent an hour on the site of a heinous crime, taken a carriage ride, seen a madwoman, and now I was hurtling through the night on a train. What would be next? Oh, my lady of chairs, protect me! I finally drifted off along with the others. I don't know how long I slept, but suddenly we were in Paris. My companions, each armed with a bundle, stepped onto the quay. Once again, Donna Saul took charge of me. My head was pounding so violently that I thought I would surely splinter. I was frightened, so terribly frightened. My friends hailed two carriages, and Donna Saul and I settled down in one of them. "'I count on you two to set our friends' minds at ease,' the actress warned Clarenne and Godard. "'Good night, gentlemen.' Messieurs Giffard, Tissandier, and Godard had asked for a report on our ascension as soon as we landed. Since it was impossible to telegraph Paris after 9 p.m. from the wasteland surrounding the capital, they had thus far received no account of us. In spite of the late hour and their fatigue, our two young companions set cheerfully off on their mission. I was left alone with my friend. Away we went. Where in the world was she taking me? After a 30-minute ride, we started down a wide, tree-lined drive. The young woman leaned forward and asked the coachman to slow down. She then began chuckling softly. Him? And look over there. The other one too? All of them? They must be insane. I lifted my head and looked about a shadowy form peered into the carriage. Donna Sol hid her face. Another mysterious shape glided nervously by, tapping the ground with its cane. Off in the distance, blurred figures gestured frantically. We continued on through the shadows. I grew more and more terrified as we advanced. Across the way stood a brightly lit house covered with ivy. Women, men, children and dogs lined the terrace searching the sky donna saw laughed until she cried the carriage turned and stopped at the gate of the handsome dwelling this caused tremendous commotion the shadows rushed toward us pushing and shoving the terrace was left deserted women and children shouted dogs barked as the street came to life policemen peered about nervously "'Are you all right? Are you still in one piece? "'Are you sure you haven't caught cold?' "'A woman in her forties approached us. "'She was deathly pale. "'You gave us the fright of our lives, my dear child,' "'she said in a sweet low voice. "'Calm yourself, dear Madame Guerard. "'I'm safe and sound, and what a good time I had!' "'exclaimed Donna hugging her friend affectionately. Then freeing herself from Madame Guérard's embraces, she pleaded for permission to go indoors. "'Let me dispose of that chair for you,' a gentleman offered, attempting to gather me away. "'Oh, no! Keep away from my chair! No one may touch it! Except you, Felicie," she continued, handing me to her maid.' The young woman to whom she confided me was a pretty sweet-faced brunette who seemed to run the household. She carried me into a huge room full of carpets, just like in my dreams, potted palms and bric-a-brac. What a thrill! I couldn't stop staring. Suddenly, to my horror, I glimpsed a stuffed white swan perched on an urn containing a sturdy palm tree two monkeys one white one black peered arm in arm from the branches a third monkey this one gray swung nearby and i'll never forget the red and green bird i saw there with emerald wings not to mention a gigantic bat with a horrible leer two parrots a grouse and the skeletons of a cat and large greyhound what a sight So this was the lair of my golden-voiced friend, and these were her victims. I averted my horrified gaze, only to glimpse more appalling things still. At the rear of the room, a dark, evil-looking little staircase led, I presumed, to hell itself. Off in a corner, a skeleton swung from a ring. A man's body! A wave of anger washed over me, i itched to dash off and inform the police that a crime had been committed why one perhaps ten perhaps more with a convulsive jerk i wrenched myself from felice's grasp and crashed to the ground Dona sol hearing the noise rushed into the room oh my chair my poor chair i love it so look one of its feet is broken what a pity. In reality, it was a leg I had broken. Plucking a satin bow from her dress, the young woman bound me up in a thrice. "'What are you going to do with this piece of furniture, madame?' asked one of her gentleman friends. "'It will go into my cellar of memories.' I glanced nervously at the mysterious staircase. "'Have you got a large storeroom down there?' asked a grey-haired man. "'Huge. "'The words, Tu passe, tu casse, tu lasse, are engraved on the door. "'And now, good night, gentlemen,' Donna Saul concluded, "'shaking hands with some of her callers "'and allowing others to raise her fingers to their lips. "'The room quickly emptied.' Help me get ready for bed, dear Felici. Good night, my chair. At dawn the next day, my actress friend descended the cellar steps dressed like a boy and clutching a small hammer. She was followed by the butler, pretty Felici's husband, who was carrying a tin of nails and a heap of little green boxes. Kneeling before me, she drove twenty-two nails into my chest with great delicacy. She then hung a medal on each, inscribed as follows, In memory of my ascension in M. Henri Giffard's captive hot-air balloon. Ever since that day I have stood quietly here in my corner, a silent witness to many curious things my feet rest on a persian rug my well-tended straw gleams in the sun my broken leg and chest full of medals have earned me the name of the invalide i have obtained everything i ever dreamed of i know i should be happy yet i can't help singing with Beranger. come back i beg my wood so dear my well-turned leg and yesteryear.